Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. As the clock ticked towards midnight on June 10, 1937, two men traversed a thick patch of woods that led to Longmeadow Farm in Stony Brook, New York. To an onlooker, it might have looked like two criminals using the cover of darkness to conceal their identities. However, it was the exact opposite. These men were FBI agents. They were taking advantage of the farm's remote backroads in order to sneak onto the premises. Earlier that morning, this would have been impossible. Only hours before, the quiet plot of land was teeming with state police, federal agents, press, and curious onlookers. Alice Parsons, the 38-year-old woman who lived at Longmeadow with her husband and housekeeper, had gone missing. And already, this case was beginning to feel like any officer's worst nightmare. The evidence was scant, and none of the witnesses seemed to be telling the same story. The string of lies was dizzying, but various law enforcement agencies refused to cooperate with each other. Even the FBI was forced to sneak onto their own crime scene. Perhaps if they'd sorted through the confusing testimonies more quickly, they would have realized the horrifying truth. The house where Alice had been sleeping just two nights before may have been the home of her killer. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on the 1937 disappearance of Alice Parsons. After Alice disappeared from her home, state police launched an investigation that eventually attracted the FBI. Although there was about as much manpower and resources as anyone could have hoped for, the case was flawed from day one. It was as if Alice Parsons had vanished into thin air, and every time the investigators got close to finding her killer, they saw the case unravel before their eyes. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. 
This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. On the evening of June 9th, 1937... The first police officers arrived at the Long Meadow Farm in Stony Brook, New York. Waiting for them at the farmhouse were Alice's husband, 49-year-old William Parsons, in addition to their housekeeper, 36-year-old Anna Kuprianova, and her son, Roy. William immediately sat the officers down and explained the situation, but his version of events seemed a little skewed. My wife, Alice, was supposed to meet me at the Huntington train station. She had dropped me off earlier that morning, and we agreed she would meet me at 5.45 p.m. We must have gone over it a million times. And she's never late, and she has certainly never forgotten. And neither of you have heard from her? No, not a word since this morning. I'm sorry, who is this? I- Oh, that's my sister, Anna. You can call her Miss Parsons. Anna Kuprianova was a great many things. She was Parsons' family housekeeper, Young Roy's mother, a Russian immigrant, and most importantly for this investigation, William's secret mistress. She was most certainly not William's sister. It seems like the cops dismissed this lie, thinking that William merely misspoke. And it's possible that this was just a result of nerves. But as the day went on, he and Anna made it clear that they had no problem massaging the truth to serve their own interests. Now that Anna was formally introduced to the officers, she was asked to give her account of things. At first, her answers seemed fairly accurate. She told them that she and Alice spent that morning together after Alice returned from the train station. But then Anna said that she saw a large Buick pull up to the house around 10.45 a.m. It looked like two people were inside. Alice went out to greet the strange vehicle and then spoke to the man in the driver's seat for a while. Anna claimed that Alice told her that these two strangers were interested in buying her late uncle's estate in Huntington, New York. She was going to drive over there with them and give them a tour, but it wouldn't take long. She'd be back before lunch. That was the last Anna heard from her. Next, the police checked in with William. He said that he'd arrived at the train station that night and became concerned when Alice didn't pick him up. He told authorities that he called Anna and was shocked to hear that his wife had been missing for most of the day. When the police asked him about what happened to Alice, he said the same thing that Anna did. As far as he knew, she got into a stranger's car that morning and never returned. But he seemed far less confident in the story than the housekeeper had been. It was almost as if he was taking cues from her. Within 15 minutes, the initial interviews were concluded and the officers began scanning the home and property. One of the first things to catch their eye was a small vial on the kitchen table. It contained roughly two ounces of liquid and was labeled Kane's Drugstore, Port Jefferson, Chloroform. These state police officers probably should have collected that vial right then and there. 
But they didn't want to let anyone in the house think that they were being considered as suspects at this early stage, so they left it alone. The officer who found the bottle left it on the table and went upstairs to interview Roy, Anna's 10-year-old son. But when he returned, the vial had vanished. This was odd, but the investigation had to continue. After they'd taken the initial statements, the officers interviewed Anna and William together. So, William, this might be troubling for you to hear, but we must consider all of our options. If this does turn out to be a kidnapping, we'll need to know about your financial situation, for the ransom and all. Do you have savings? You know, officer, I think you're right. I I feel like this was most certainly a kidnapping. I mean, you really should start looking for a note. I bet there's one around here somewhere. I actually don't have any inclination to believe that's the case. We just need to cover all of our bases at this point. No, no, this feels like a kidnapping to me. I mean, the family is comfortable, and why else would a woman with money like that disappear, hmm? She could have fallen ill, or she could even just be with a friend or relative. It hasn't even been 24 hours. Is there any particular reason why you're so convinced this was a kidnapping? It's a gut feeling. My gut has never led me astray. Not once. The uh, officer, I think what Anna is trying to say is that we are just tremendously worried about our Alice. Maybe we should look for a ransom note so we can put the theory to rest, right? For our peace of mind. Right. Sensing that this wasn't going to be an open and shut case, the officer called backup and put out a few feelers to nearby federal agents. As more investigators showed up to the farm, Anna and William were subjected to dozens of interviews. And the lies kept coming. William stated that Roy was his legally adopted son. Anna insisted that Alice and William were happily married and never fought on any occasion. Both of them said that William only left the farm on average four times a year. All of these statements were completely false. No more than 10 minutes could pass without Anna bringing the conversation back to the possibility of a ransom note. It had to be somewhere, she claimed, and the officers were simply wasting time by not conducting a more thorough search. The detectives complied. By 11.45 p.m., two full searches had been conducted through the house, barn, and Alice's car. They didn't find a note. And these officers weren't just shining their flashlights around and taking haphazard glances. They had searched every inch of the space, twice. And both times they came back empty-handed. But still, the housekeeper insisted that there was a ransom note somewhere on the property. While the officers were trying to make sense of this, Anna was called into yet another interview. The police prompted her to give more of a thorough introduction. They asked Anna to tell them about her relationships with the Parsons and how she ended up at Long Meadow. Her answers were long, meandering, and almost completely false. I come from a long line of Russian nobility. Aristocrats, intellectuals, cultured individuals. So naturally, this rural lifestyle, it isn't for me. I've always felt like a stranger in this strange land, especially after my husband died last year in Serbia. He was a great man, a very wise man. I miss him every day. And what about Alice? Did you think she shared this sort of intellectualism? Did you two have a lot in common? 
<laughs> no, absolutely not. She was a woman who seemed a bit bland, you know? Well, I can certainly admit that I have a bit of a superiority complex. It was easy to see that she was a very plain and boring woman. I can't help but notice that you're using the past tense here. Oh, it's just been a long night, that's all. Miss Kuprianova, is everything you've told me tonight the absolute truth? Yes. Thank you for your time. By now, it was 1.30 a.m. The officers thought they'd exhausted all the questions that they had for William, Anna, and Roy. They were ready to wrap up after a long, confusing night. But just then, a new piece of information surfaced. In his final interview of the night, William revealed the details of Alice's will. Obviously, as Alice's husband, he was set to receive a large sum of money if she died. But the will had been altered at some point in the last few years. And after the revisions, Anna and Roy were also entitled to a combined $40,000. It was still very early in the investigation, but a theory was starting to take shape. There was the domineering housekeeper who couldn't stop lying and the nervous husband who seemed to be backing her up. And now a will that promised both parties a healthy sum of money. Any investigator would have raised an eyebrow. But there were more immediate matters to attend to. Two officers decided to search Alice Parsons' car for a third time, just to be safe. And to their surprise, they immediately saw something sticking out from underneath the passenger seat. The bright white envelope was visible even in the dead of night. It was hard to believe that any of the officers could have missed it during their previous searches. Either it had been overlooked by multiple police officers, or someone had planted it there. One of the officers ripped the envelope open. Inside was a ransom note. Will Parsons, I have your wife for 25,000 ransom. I calculate you could get that money in 24 hours. I have no place to keep her longer. Meet me at the bus terminal in Jamaica at 9 o'clock p.m. Bring money in a box. My man will call you by name and you go with him. He will take you to your wife. But mind, if any cop aboard, you'll pay for it. And she will never speak again. Coming up, the press descends upon Longmeadow Farms and Anna Kuprianova's lies finally get the best of her. Hi, listeners. I'm Tom Morton, host of Parcast's landmark show, Real Pirates, where we set sail alongside history's most notorious villains. Dive into their world during the golden age of piracy in an immersive audio experience. Listen as experts reveal the reality of life under the black flag. There is no evidence that I have ever seen of any pirate burying their treasure. Catch our previous episodes on Major Steve Bonnet, Charles Vane, and Blackbeard. Blackbeard himself as a pirate was a larger-than-life figure. He would put candles into his hair to frighten his victims. And still to come are the stories of Anne Bonny, Captain Kidd, and Henry Morgan. Join us for new episodes every Monday as we follow the rise and fall of the most legendary outlaws ever to sail the seven seas. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast. Follow and listen to Real Pirates for free on Spotify. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now back to the story. At 1.30 a.m. on June 10, 1937, state police officers located a ransom note in the back seat of 39-year-old Alice Parsons' Dodge. The FBI arrived on the scene soon thereafter. This was the first indication of what happened to Alice since she was last seen the previous morning. Even though it seemed dubious, the officers chose to take it at face value. William called his wealthy older brother-in-law and asked him to withdraw the $25,000. They started preparing to meet the kidnappers at the agreed-upon location later that night. And if it were that simple, perhaps that would have been the end of things. Whoever wrote that ransom note would have received their money and Alice just might have been returned to safety. But that isn't how things panned out. At roughly 2.50 a.m., the phone rang at the Parsons' home. It was a reporter from the New York Daily. Ray Whitley, the special agent in charge for the FBI's New York office, picked up the phone. Special Agent Whitley, who may I ask is calling? We've received word of a kidnapping and a ransom note. This could be huge, Agent Whitley. I'm hoping you'll take the opportunity to get out in front of this narrative before it mows you down. How on earth did you hear this? I'm not at liberty to disclose that information. No comment. The ransom note had been discovered only an hour and a half earlier, and the only people present at the farm were fellow officers and the Parsons. To this day, we don't know how the information got out, but we know that Anna had been pushing the kidnapping narrative for hours and may have wanted the press on her side. The story spread from outlet to outlet, and by morning, it was national news. And now that the details were public, there was no way the FBI could safely hand off the money. As the officers tried to navigate the mess that the media had made, Whitley called in five more agents. They arrived at 6.55 a.m. and promptly took control of the investigation. Just like the state police before them, the agents collected testimony from their two main witnesses, Anna Kuprianova and William Parsons. And like clockwork, the two spouted lies at a rapid clip. Anna was seemingly getting more creative with her fabricated backstory. She told the FBI that she was related to a noble family that served under the great czars of Russia. And even though she'd just told an officer that her husband died in Serbia, she claimed he passed away in London. And as Anna's testimonies grew more colorful, William seemed to grow more and more worn down by the marathon interrogations. Not even a full day had passed since Alice disappeared. But in that short period, the Parsons' home had descended into complete mayhem. Four different branches of law enforcement, local, county, state, and federal, had filtered in and out. And as if that wasn't enough, the media had arrived, essentially barricading the family in. 
And while Anna Kuprianova seemed completely unfazed, William made it clear in his diary that he was on the verge of breaking down. G-men, as far as the eye can see. We even had to send the dogs off with the neighbors. They've been barking like hell this whole time. The local police are loud and clumsy. The federal agents are pompous and think they own the place. I haven't slept a wink. Feeling like this may never end. The rest of the day continued in the same fashion, with William and Anna taking part in extensive interviews well into the night. But William's mental state was clearly deteriorating. The FBI decided to withdraw for the night, even though they had plenty more questions for him. The federal agents set up a makeshift headquarters two miles away from the farm. As soon as they left, the rest of the officers followed suit. Suddenly, the house was quiet. William, Anna, and Roy were on their own for the first time in 48 hours. But Agent Whitley was smarter than that. He knew he needed to have eyes on Anna and William at all hours. So, he had two of his men sneak through the woods and onto the farm. Anna and William awoke to a knock on the door and were informed that the agents would be setting up shop in their guest room. They agreed begrudgingly. William and Anna weren't exactly in the position to be giving any FBI agents a hard time. With things in a more stable place, the FBI could begin to hone in on the leads that they had culled together over the past two days. They started with the ransom note. The first thing they noticed was a peculiar watermark on the paper. It spelled out C-R-O-N, which was short for Chronicon USA, a paper company based in Pennsylvania. This company was only distributed to 10 stores in Long Island, one of which was a short drive from Longmeadow Farm. So the person who wrote the note probably lived nearby, too. For the next few days, this was the only substantial lead that the agents could find. Anna and William kept telling the same story, save for the embellishments that Anna would throw in every now and again. The investigators tried to widen their circle of witnesses, but neither Williams nor Alice's family had anything substantial to offer, and none of the locals did either. But then, in the second week of June, the agents stationed inside the Parsons' home proved to be more useful than anyone could have anticipated. While Roy was out of the house, the two men did a thorough search of his room. They uncovered two sheets of loose-leaf paper, stuck inside a textbook. Along the lower left side of the page was a watermark, C-R-O-N, the very same watermark that was found on the ransom note. They reported their findings to headquarters and immediately had the ransom note sent out to be checked for fingerprints and handwriting tests. At this point, the agents had two suspects, Anna and William. It seemed like the two of them were trying to present a unified front, even though Anna seemed to be pulling the strings. But as it stood, there wasn't much solid evidence against them. If DNA or penmanship could tie them to the note, it could change the entire course of the investigation. A handwriting analyst was able to find some similarities between the note and a sample given by Anna, but it wasn't enough to move the case forward. There were fingerprints on the note, too, but they weren't a match. 
Because the ransom note didn't give the investigation the push that the agents had hoped for, there was still plenty of work to be done. Over the next few weeks, search parties of up to 150 volunteers and police officers searched the farm in hopes of finding anything that could help track down Alice. And while they didn't find any burial sites, strange footprints, or murder weapons, they did find something that was certainly illuminating. The search party uncovered a surplus of used condoms in the septic system. At first, this didn't bring about any sort of pause. But once it was passed along to the authorities, they started to put the pieces together. The investigators knew that Alice had been desperately trying to have a child with William before she disappeared. It seemed unlikely that she would be using any form of birth control. But maybe he was having sexual relations with someone else. Someone that he needed to be extra cautious to not impregnate. Someone like the housekeeper. This was, of course, very circumstantial evidence, but it helped flesh out the theory that William and Anna were lovers. After the search parties proved to be mostly unsuccessful, the FBI decided to return their focus to the suspects. They started to take inventory of just how many lies Anna Kuprianova told within those first two weeks of the investigation. They found that there were days when Anna would change her answers to different officers within the hour. She lied about everything, from the personal details. My husband, he died back in Russia. So young, too. The Bolsheviks shot him down like swine. I miss him every day. Oh, my husband? Yes, he's been in London for years. A dishonest man left me without a penny. Abandoned Roy without even thinking twice. What kind of man could do such a thing? to what happened the morning of June 9th, 1937. No, I couldn't make out the people that drove Alice away. It's a shame. I wish I could be more of a help. Yes, I got a rather good view of the people inside the Buick that Alice got into, actually. The driver wore a straw hat. There was a woman sitting next to him. She had a very round face with a fair complexion. Hard to forget a sight like that. Anna's adamant claim that she did not know how to drive also struck the agents as odd. She brought this up on multiple occasions, especially whenever the topic of Alice's car came into play. Alice's car, the Dodge, it was parked in the same place all day. I could have moved it, sure, but I can't even drive. Wouldn't even know how, even if I wanted to. Never learned. I really should get around to it. It didn't take long to figure out that this was yet another lie. A family friend told the officers that Anna could definitely drive. This person even remembered being there when Anna took her road test. The police also scrutinized William's previous testimony. And even though he couldn't hold a candle to Anna's theatrical displays of dishonesty, he certainly had trouble keeping his story straight. From the first day of the investigation, he insisted that he and his wife lived a perfect life. They never argued or strayed from one another. But then, in another testimony that had gotten lost in the pile, FBI agents found some troubling statements that William had made in the early hours of June 10th. It seemed like a rare moment of honesty that, for whatever reason, had been entirely overlooked by investigators. I'll be honest with you. I 
have to be honest with you here. For the past six weeks, no, eight weeks, uh, me and Alice have been on the outs. Sometimes she'd do a good 12 hours without saying so much as a word to me. It's like she's in her own world. Any idea why? I, I'm so tired. I, I shouldn't even be talking to you like this. You're doing the right thing, Parsons. Now come on, let's just talk this through. Isn't it obvious? Me and Anna, we, we've been, you know, and nothing gets past Alice, so of course she found out. But come on, what could I do? You see how Anna commands a room? Every set of eyes, every mind, every heart, she holds it all in the palm of her hand. It's like I'm powerless against her and whatever she wants, I'll do it, even if it's not right. Are you saying that she killed Alice? What? Oh, I, I, I'm sorry. I'm just tired. I, I should go grab some coffee. Well, just hold on. That's all. I'm sorry. Coming up, Alice and William's lies start to unravel. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. And now, back to our story. By July of 1937, 36-year-old Anna Kuprianova and 49-year-old William Parsons had been catapulted from persons of interest to prime suspects. At first, the FBI had trouble figuring out a motive. Then it became clear that William and Anna had been engaging in an affair. The agents theorized that Anna wanted William's wife, Alice Parsons, out of the picture so she could continue their romance freely. Perhaps more importantly, she wanted the inheritance that was promised in Alice's will. And somehow, she'd convinced William to go along with the plot. And even though the FBI had been watching them for an entire month, it was starting to look like they'd get away with it. Their testimonies were incredibly suspicious, but there still wasn't any physical evidence to tie them to the crime. And Alice's body hadn't been found. But FBI Special Agent E.J. Conley wasn't about to give up on the case. He had been quietly lurking in the background for much of this time and watching the subtle behavioral changes in William and Anna. They'd been a unified front during that first month, but something had shifted. It seemed like William was starting to break. 
Even though he continued to show up for interviews, it was clear that he was losing steam. There was a change in Anna as well. She'd never been able to keep her story consistent, but now she was just getting sloppy. There was a new contradiction every time they spoke. With this in mind, Conley decided it was time to make his big move. At 6 a.m. on the morning of July 11th, a car drove up to Longmeadow Farm and picked up Anna and William. Once at the FBI headquarters, they each sat down in separate rooms and interviews commenced. However, early into the morning, a news report that came in caused William to wince. Agent Connolly, however, felt like he had won the lottery. A woman, just under 40 years old, had been found dead in the Long Island Sound. You read the paper today, Will? No, not yet. Why do you ask? Well, they found a body in the Sound, wearing a blue dress. You said last time you saw Alice, she was wearing a blue dress. Isn't that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Small world. They say the body showed signs of decay that are consistent with about one month of floating adrift. Say, didn't something happen about a month ago? Something significant. Uh, What was it again? That's when Alice... Right. That's when Alice went missing. Talk about a coincidence. Now, if I were a betting man, I'd say that after the autopsy, they'll find traces of chloroform in her system. You're familiar with chloroform, right? You had that bottle on the kitchen table the night Alice vanished, so you must know a thing or two about it. The body wasn't Alice's, but it seemed like Connolly's bluff had worked. William grew withdrawn and the color left his face. Later that day, he asked to speak to the agent. If I just say that I killed my wife, can this all end? I'm begging you, I have nothing to live for anymore. I just want to protect Roy. You can't plead guilty to first-degree murder without all of the facts reviewed. I'll need a full confession. And you should know that because of Anna's connection to everything, the two of you will have to be tried together. Look, it's not that I killed her. It's just that I'm responsible for her death. So can't you just lock me up for that and make this all go away, please? It's not that simple. It's just not that simple, Will. Why are you protecting her? I love her. You must be able to see that. But it's hard. She's not easy. Anytime I would show any affection towards Alice, Anna would lose it. She grew more resentful of her every day. She hated her more than anything. And so, she killed her. I'm not saying that. All I am saying is that I allowed for her death by letting this ruse go on for as long as it did. So it's my fault. There are too many loose ends. What about the chloroform? I bought it, okay? I'll confess to that. But I did not kill my wife. (sighs) Thank you, Will. Conley continued to push on William, trying to get him to confess to Alice's murder outright. He refused to go that far, but he did give a sworn statement about purchasing the chloroform. He mentioned that Anna asked him to purchase it, and even said that he believed Anna intended to kill Alice with it. It seemed like Anna was using him to help eliminate Alice from her life completely. Whether or not William still had any remaining feelings for Alice was unclear, but it seemed irrelevant. He would do anything Anna told him to. 
While this was happening, Anna was being kept in a separate room on a different floor of the FBI headquarters. An officer told her about William's statement, and the two were placed in the same room for the first time in 20 hours. They were both told that this was so they could confer and decide how they wished to proceed. What they didn't know was that microphones were hidden in the room. The FBI agents could hear their every word. Why would you tell them that? Why are you so weak? Just tell them where the body is. This can all go away. I'll, I'll take the blame. You and Roy can be happy and free of this. There is no body. She's not dead. Then where is she? I'll tell the lawyer. I can't trust you any longer. This wasn't enough to charge either of them with murder. But if the agents could just get some hard evidence on their hands, this recording would win over just about any jury. Conley was sure of it. Feeling as though he had all he could possibly need, he sent Ann and William home with a few FBI agents that afternoon. From here, they just needed to build out the case a little bit more. A few more sweeps of the property, maybe a wiretap here and there, and William Parsons and Anna Kuprianova would be behind bars. But there was something Connolly didn't account for. And that was the effect that Anna had on William. She controlled him entirely. The two of them had two days alone at the farm before Connolly's next visit, and by that point, the damage had been done. Agent Connolly, good morning to you. You seem to be in a good mood. Well, here's the thing. This might come as a bit of a shock, but I'll have to recant my statement. William, you cannot be serious. What did Anna say to you? We talked about it. We talked about so much. And you see, (laughs) I was delirious. I've been so sleep-deprived and stressed. I'm sorry, officer. You know this completely ruins any chance of you being taken seriously in court. In the news, you'll be seen as a liar, unreliable. The things we do for love, right? I'm sure you'll understand. Sorry to waste your time. William retracted his confession and forced Conley to write up a new statement. In it, he claimed to have never purchased chloroform and had no knowledge of Anna doing it either. He also wiped any admission to a romantic relationship with Anna off the record. He claimed that his previous statement was the result of a momentarily weakened mental state. Conley was devastated by this turn of events, but he was still fairly certain that William and Anna were guilty. He just needed them to admit it. Conley spent the next few months trying to coax a confession out of William and Anna, but no matter what he did, they refused to talk. The investigation was stuck in a holding pattern until September 1939, when William Parsons called a surprise press conference. There, he told the media that he was selling the farm in Stony Brook. He said that he still hoped to have his beloved wife return to him. After the farm sold, William boarded a ship to Los Angeles. About two months after that, Anna and Roy followed suit. By this point, William had already adopted Roy as his own son. It seemed like the three of them were trying to distance themselves from Alice Parsons and begin a new life on the West Coast. But the FBI was tracking them the entire time. 
A group of agents watched Anna and Roy arrive in California and started tailing them on their way to the new home they planned to share with William. The investigators wanted to stake out the house and eventually set up surveillance there. So, as William, Anna, and Roy drove off into what they hoped would be a fresh start, the FBI were close behind. And then, disaster struck. Not long into their tale, William's car suddenly stopped and pulled off to the side of the road. It seemed like he'd noticed the two cars. Acting fast, the first vehicle just kept driving ahead, paying no mind. But the second driver didn't do so well under pressure. He came to a screeching halt behind William. The suspect promptly got out of his car and approached the plainclothes officers. Good afternoon. What can I do for you, gentlemen? Oh, hello, sir. Uh, What do you mean? We're just out of gas is all. You've been following me for miles. That's crazy. That's nonsense. Right. Okay. Well, have a lovely day, officer. Incensed, William stomped back to his car and sped away. The officer immediately radioed headquarters and let them know what happened. Then, the second travesty of that afternoon occurred. Both FBI vehicles were ordered to return in order to debrief. This meant that the tail on William and Anna had been lost. And not only could they no longer tail the two of them, but they had blown a golden opportunity for surveillance. If there was ever an opportunity to catch either of them confessing to the murder of Alice Parsons, this was it and the moment was gone. With this massive letdown, the Alice Parsons case went cold. And even though the investigators seemed so close to finding the culprits, it was never revived. In the aftermath, the executor of Alice's estate was able to adjust the allocations in her will. Anna's son, Roy, was promised $15,000 that could be collected on his 30th birthday. But William and Anna who might have gone to incredible lengths to get this money, were completely shut out. It must have been a letdown, and surely took a toll on Anna and William's relationship, but nothing that couldn't be mended with the passage of time. On July 22, 1940, William and Anna were married. They lived out the rest of their lives together in San Benito County, California. On June 9, 1946, Alice Parsons was officially declared dead. To this day, a body has never been found, and there have been no new developments to the case. With the amount of close calls that took place over the six-month investigation, it is baffling how Anna Kuprianova and William Parsons did not end up behind bars. They were caught in an endless number of lies, both big and small. There is audio of the two of them candidly discussing Alice's disappearance. And William even confessed. And yet somehow, they managed to slide in between the cracks. If there was even just a shred more physical evidence, they most likely would have been convicted. Most researchers seem to agree that Anna Kuprianova was pulling the strings and that William Parsons acted as a mere pawn in her scheme. It's hard to tell if he was in on the plot the whole time or if he was genuinely surprised by Alice's disappearance. 
The one thing that does seem clear is that he helped Anna get away with it. He appeared so submissive throughout the whole ordeal, and at times seemed to truly miss Alice. We have to wonder what was going on in his head as he tried to cover up whatever was done to a woman he'd spent the last 12 years with. But while William Parsons' story is strange and sad, the true tragedy here is that of Alice Parsons. She'd faced countless disappointments in life only to emerge a vibrant and warm young woman. And still, she met a demise that was cruel and unjust. And although she may never receive the justice she so dearly deserved, her story will not be forgotten. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. For more information, amongst the many sources we used, we found Long Island's Vanished Heiress, the unsolved Alice Parsons kidnapping by Stephen Drelak to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. We live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Spencer Fox, with writing assistance by Kylie Harrington and Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Joe Hernandez, Drew Lawn, and Melissa Medina. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. <laughs>